The Tea Health Show, your medical lifestyle podcast, brought to you by the Tea Clinic. Good day, I'm Dr. Mark. This is the Tea Health Show, and in studio today we have Dr. Martine Joffe, an old colleague and friend of mine. Martine, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for the invitation. As always, our lovely Simpiwe back. Yes, last uh, week she was absent uh, at a conference. Um, we are going to talk about a condition that's incredibly prevalent in our society and getting more so. And today's topic is diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, Martine, you are with the Manor Medical Diabetic Center here in Gallo Manor, Johannesburg. Um, you are a, a general practitioner that specializes in diabetes care, you're an international speaker, you have international diplomas, etc., etc. Tell us about this condition. So it's a, as you say, incredibly common, all too common condition. Um, and in some of the lectures that I've given recently, I often put up a slide that starts with all the words pandemic, epidemic. We're all too familiar with words like this because of coronavirus pandemic. But unfortunately, diabetes is not one that is going to go away in two years or one that can be mitigated by wearing a mask or having a vaccine. Unfortunately, diabetes is um, associated with lifestyle problems as well as genetic conditions and is something that we are seeing ever increasing the world over. Just to speak to some specific numbers, in Mm. 2013, the International Diabetes Federation Atlas, they put out um, a number of about 500 and, sorry, 380 million people in the world living with type 2 diabetes with the projected increase over a number of years. And if you track those increases, they are said to increase by 100% or 120% in certain areas, which is quite frightening. And in 2021, the latest um, IDF Atlas gave a number in the region of 600 million, and that is projected to increase to 780 million by the year 2045. These numbers are fairly scary. So we are looking at, at the moment, at least 10% of the world population dealing with diabetes. And um, you know what, when I looked at statistics, the frightening one for me was there's so many people that actually do not know that they're diabetic or where diagnosis of diabetes have been made. Um, and to be honest, the figures was one in three people don't know Absolutely. Um, or don't know that they're diabetic. It's it's scary. It is scary. And in those particular people, the disease goes ahead. The complications become all too prevalent. The cost um, in terms of their ability to work, in terms of how they can look after their family, in terms of medical costs, um, they, they just skyrocket because they are not mitigating those effects at all. At least when people are on treatment, we try to reduce the risk of those complications developing. Mm. But the undiagnosed people, particularly here in Africa, we are seen on that map, the color is very strong, that people in southern Africa 
about 50% yes. are undiagnosed. Yeah, I, I actually saw that map mm-hmm. and it's color-coded and we are uh, a dark red. Um, it's almost a magenta. It's not, it's not even red anymore. We, we, um, uh, the projected figures, as you said, is incredibly high. Before we go further, let's just actually look at what diabetes is. If we look at a definition of diabetes in layman's terms, how would we describe that? First and foremost, diabetes is a disorder of your sugar metabolism in your blood. And it depends if you have a type 1 diabetes or a type 2 diabetes, what actually leads to that in terms of problems in hormones and problems in areas in your body. One of the problems, the biggest problems for me, is the associated issues with diabetes. So often people will just want to come in and treat their diabetes, but they don't realize that it is also associated with other conditions like high blood pressure, being overweight, high cholesterol, um, and all these things increase the risk of um, heart problems and a whole host of complications. Simpiwe, uh, examination time. She hates this because I test on all the previous stuff that we've done. Martine described a condition that we've discussed at various uh, interviews. Do you remember metabolic disease that we've discussed? I think you did a whole even episode on it. We did a whole episode on metabolic disease. So um, let's just quickly run through it. Martine, metabolic disease, uh, there's six characteristics or six diseases or conditions that make up metabolic disease. The one you've mentioned, and that's an increase in sugar. Um, then there's an increase in cholesterol levels, especially LDL cholesterol. Then it's your thyroid metabolism, which um, starts slowing down or with your thyroid becoming underactive. We have weight gain, hypertension, and the last one is hypogonadism where we're not producing enough uh, hormones, your sex hormones. Now, you only need three of the, of the above to be diagnosed with metabolic disease or metabolic syndrome. And in your practice and in my practice, because I refer all my diabetic patients to your practice, um, it's something that I see in at least four out of five patients, healthy, let's put it this way, people that think that they are healthy because all of these above conditions do not present with overt noticeable <coughs> symptoms. Exactly, Mark. Um, I think that's that's a very important point, that the diabetes itself is silent unless the sugar is very high or very low. And um, we can talk about symptoms of, of um, high sugar just now. Um, this is also true for high cholesterol and um, high blood pressure. The thyroid, I think, is the only one that would really bring people to the doctor saying that they are tired or sluggish or putting on weight, and then they would, the doctor would look for one of the other conditions or try and put it together in that syndrome X or um, mm. metabolic syndrome, as you said. Um, funnily enough, just an add on to your, what you said about cholesterol, people who are at high risk of diabetes can have a normal LDL and a high triglyceride reading. Okay. So 
triglycerides. Just explain that to us because I think what I always try and do, and I, I, I hope this is correct, I always tell people triglycerides are like that free fatty acids, the, the oils and fats that's in the blood. That's that awesome. makes up the building blocks of cholesterol. Am, am I right? Or do you have a better way of putting this? I, I think I explain it a little bit differently. The, the triglyceride, I try and break the, the cholesterol down into the different values that we see in terms of the blood results. So we'll talk about the total cholesterol. Yes. And once somebody has diabetes, we target a lower cholesterol level because of the other risk factors involved in heart disease. And then I talk about the LDL cholesterol, which I say is the bad cholesterol. Yeah. We, we classify it as the bad cholesterol. The bad cholesterol. Yes. And that is the one that is, can we say, atherogenic which is the one that I say clogs the arteries. Yes. Then we talk about the HDL, which is the so-called good cholesterol. Good cholesterol, yes. That if you have a high LDL over 1.0, it is protective in terms of heart problems. I thought that value was 1.6. So it's 1.0. Yeah. Okay. And then the triglycerides, I call them the pure fats. And I say this is one that is very, very reactive to what you'd eaten the day before. So the LDL and the HDL and the total cholesterol can be affected over a period of time. Mm. But let's say you have an extremely high-fat meal the night before. Like lasagna that I had last night. Lasagna or a lamb stew or a pizza. So something that you can actually see that layer of oil on the top of what you're eating. That is the one that is going to, to give you all a very reactive high number in terms of those triglycerides. And more and more research is being done at the moment on the atherogenicity or the dangers of this triglyceride. But it's very interesting that often people with diabetes have got this so-called normal LDL or not too elevated, but the triglyceride is very high. And that does not mean that they've got any less risk of heart problems. They still have a high risk. Okay, so a lot of our listeners have had cholesterol tests done and they would have most probably done a full lipogram. Now, what you just told me is news to me uh, and it will change the way that I look at my lipogram going forward. But you know what? Most of our patients are now are on the uh apps where they have access to their bloods. What is the normal triglyceride level? Below 1.7, definitely? 1.7, yes. That is a normal triglyceride. Anything there and thereabout, I don't get too excited about in terms of treating it. Um, The other thing that can affect the triglyceride level is a very high circulating glucose level, a very high sugar level. So somebody who has recently been diagnosed with diabetes and hasn't actually got onto treatment yet for the diabetes, they may have a very high triglyceride level which will settle once the glucose is controlled. So it's not something I jump on straight away in terms of treatments with medication. But once the sugar is normal, if that triglyceride remains high, I do treat it. You know, but uh, if we know where these triglycerides are coming from, and that's through your diet, fats that you eat, unhealthy fats that you eat, would this include things like avocado, olive oil? No, it's it's the fat that becomes hard, Mm. so hydrolyzed fat. 
So those fats that you mentioned, the avocado, olive oil, fats in olives, those are, can we say, good fats? Yeah. So they're monounsaturated fats, Mm. and they are, you know, not harmful to you if not taken in excess. Even though they are the so-called good fats, if we eat them excessively, you will still put on weight from them, and they will still throw your lipogram out. Okay. But those triglycerides um, very much are influenced by what you have eaten and your circulating sugar levels. Okay. So triglycerides, guys, very easy. You have to look at your lifestyle. Yeah. Easy. Okay. Diet, lifestyle. Okay. So we have different types of diabetes. You and I, uh, you've touched on them, type 1 diabetes. Um, So let's just quickly stop and explain. Type 1 diabetes is... Uh, autoimmune condition, am I right? Autoimmune condition where the body makes antibodies to itself. It makes antibodies to the cells in your pancreas that make insulin. Those are the beta cells. The beta cells, they are basically destroyed by these antibodies. There are different types. And this process can take place at a young age, at about nine and then somewhere in puberty, these are the peaks that I'm talking about, yes. the incidence. And in the 20s, we get a lot of patients who are erroneously diagnosed as having type 2 diabetes, but they don't, can we say, fit the profile of a typical person with type 2 diabetes. Mm. And if you look further, often they have got what we call latent onset ah. autoimmune diabetes. In adults, a yes. Larder. Yeah, which is essentially a type one diabetes. That's diabetes just slow in, in adulthood, onset. slow in onset, slow in destruction of the beta cells. Because often these patients are first given tablets; they are not given insulin straight away, and they do quite well. And after a while, they lose control of their glucose. And then, if you look further, we see that it is actually the fat because of the fact that they require insulin. Okay, so these are your patients that typically was diagnosed as a type 2 and then over four or five years on the type 2 medication progress to where they start needing insulin? I think four or five years is even a bit long, perhaps one to two years. A little bit sooner. It's very difficult to predict. You don't know what their beta cell reserve is like. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you treat them and you rest the beta cell in inverted commas, you can prolong the life of those beta cells that remain. But um, essentially, they've got to be looked for. We are not, they're not going to, it's it's not obvious. Okay. So autoimmune condition, type 1 diabetes, is there an association with other autoimmune diseases? For instance, your thyroid autoimmune diseases, Hashimoto's or Graves, uh, arthritis, rheumatoid, osteo, SLE, MS. Is there, um, do they go hand in hand? So we, we often see an association with thyroid conditions, usually Graves, which is overactive thyroid, or Hashimoto's underactive thyroid. We also have seen an association with celiac disease. Okay, so at celiac disease, just in layman's terms, this is a condition where your bowel is very sensitive to, for, to, for instance, gluten, and you have severe reactions, uh, mostly diarrhea and malabsorption. Yeah. So it's usually associated with that. If you probe further with the patients, they'll often tell you my mom has some sort of autoimmune condition. It may be, to name a few, as you said, SLE or rheumatoid arthritis. It's not necessarily more associated with one than the other, but often in the family there is a picture of a general autoimmune. Okay. 
Okay. Disease That's very potential. interesting because so many of our patients present with that in one way or another. And most of them, especially the thyroid conditions, are so, uh, is, is underdiagnosed. Okay. Martine, that brings us to type two diabetes. So can we take a step further as, sorry, a step backwards? Um, the type one diabetes, most people would describe it as childhood onset mm-hmm. and insulin requiring. Those are the distinguishing factors. From the get-go, these patients need insulin and usually diagnosed in childhood, usually not particularly overweight. Yes. Usually not associated with that metabolic syndrome we were talking about earlier. Okay. If we move on to type 2 diabetes, often these are patients who do have one or two features of the metabolic syndrome. They are often overweight. They often have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, underactive thyroid, hypogonadism, as you say, enlarged waist circumference. Um, And these patients are usually diagnosed later on in life. And usually they will say to you, my mom had diabetes, my father, my uncle, Mm. my cousin, a grandparent. It can skip a generation, but usually there is a family history of type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is not less aggressive than type 1 diabetes. I think sometimes people say, oh, I have a touch of sugar or mild diabetes, I just only take tablets. I don't think people realize the potential complications of type 2 diabetes, even though they are not put onto insulin straight away. But um, the, the, the diabetes is, is important, and we need to treat it from the get-go with various medications. But added to that are the lifestyle interventions of exercising and adjusting what they are eating. Okay. Now... Um, simply, we have you ever heard the term I'm insulin resistant? Have you? Yes, I have. Okay. So, Martine, um, outside, um, prior to us coming into the studio, I spoke to you about this and you had very strong opinions about the term insulin resistance. So, before we go to insulin resistance, shall we rather talk about pre-diabetes or do you want to to tell us about why we shouldn't use the term insulin resistant. Let's talk about pre-diabetes. Okay, let's go there. So I think it just contextualizes what, what we're trying to say. If you look at normal readings or the spectrum of glu- uh, conditions associated with a high glucose, let's go to what a normal glucose is. So a fasting glucose in a person who does not have diabetes would be in the range of 3.3 to 5.5 millimoles per liter. Yes, this means if I haven't eaten from 10 o'clock at night time and I do my glucose test, whether it's a blood test or a finger prick test, in the morning, first thing, it should be below 5.5, but higher than 3.3. Let's leave um, finger prick glucose out. out for now because you cannot okay. use that to diagnose... Diabetes, diabetes. Mm-hmm. absolutely. So if we're talking and I'm glad about, that you said that, but we'll get back to that one. So 3.3 to 5.5, if you get that on a blood glucose report, you do not have diabetes. Your glucose is normal. Normal is a big word, but your glucose is considered normal. If your glucose comes out after a 10-hour fast at 7.0 millimoles per liter or higher, you are considered to have diabetes. Is this irrespective of whether you've done a tolerance test? That is a fasting glucose. So fasting glucose over 7. Point zero. 
Yes. Okay. It used to be 7.1, and then they reduced it to 7.0. Okay. So what what happens between 5.5 and 7? So we we a bit on the fence between 5.5 and 5.9, 6, but once your glucose reaches 6.1 to 6.9, we say you, do, you have an impaired fasting glucose, that your glucose is not normal because it is not below that range of 3.3 to 5.5, but it is not high enough to say you have diabetes. So I will say that your glucose does not fit into the normal range, but it is not high enough to consider the fact that you have diabetes. But you have what we call an intermediate glucose level, and we need to make sure it does not go higher so that you now receive the diagnosis of having diabetes. Okay. So my question that I was going to ask to you is, are we not missing a lot with that intermediate range? So there's a lot of work being done at the moment on this intermediate glycemia. A similar term you may may hear is pre-diabetes. And I think a lot of the people where you were saying the insulin resistance I think that's where it comes in as well because people may not have a normal glucose, but it's not high enough to say that they have diabetes. But they know that if they don't do something about it, they have the potential to become diabetic. Okay. So I just quickly want to circle back. Type 2 diabetes is a condition that where we have – sorry, let me rephrase. I had to think there for a second – Type 2 diabetes is a condition where we have a higher blood sugar um, level due to the fact that we either don't produce enough insulin or where the insulin or the body's reaction to insulin is substandard or not as effective as it should be. So – Again, if I if I look at what I've just said, I'm going to, oh my goodness, you know what? I don't have good sugar levels. I'm not yet a diabetic, but I'm definitely not reacting to uh, glucose as well as I should. And you know what? Um, higher levels of glucose, and we're going to look at some of the causes of higher glucose, stress being one of them. Um, this over time is going to lead to problems. It is going to lead to problems, particularly if we keep stressing those beta cells. So what happens in the body is when you eat, food is digested, and then by a series of processes broken up into the building blocks. So a carbohydrate will be broken up into a simple sugar, um, that a piece of bread, pasta, rice, something like that. Your protein will be broken down into amino acids and your fats will be simplified into simpler fats. And what happens is your your blood sugar level will rise once you have digested your carbohydrate and absorbed it into the bloodstream. This is done um, because of a series of processes through the enzyme pathways in your mm. gut. So now your body's... Your sugar level has gone up in your blood. That should then, in an inverted commas normal process, would stimulate the beta cell to produce a hormone called insulin. Yes. The insulin will then allow the cells in the rest of your body to absorb that simple carbohydrate, that simple sugar, and put it into 
the Krebs cycle to make energy. You know, but I often tell my patients, I either use the analogy of ESCOM, but we'll, we'll get to that one when we talk about energy metabolism. But I always tell my patients, insulin is the key that opens gates for glucose to move from the blood into the cell where it's used. And I go further and tell them, think of a janitor that has to walk down an incredibly long corridor with thousands of doors. And he has to put a packet of glucose into each, uh, into each one of these rooms. Now, if he doesn't know which key fits in which door, he needs to walk around with every single possible key that he has. Now think of that key as the insulin. So, if your insulin is not working properly, in other words, if your key is not fitting, the door properly, or if you can't make sufficient insulin, you can't move that glucose. So now your janitor is stuck with us, and that becomes a problem. Um, and that's how we use our medications that modify how insulin functions. Okay, so it's an insulin problem that happens over time due to particular reasons. So it's something that we need to manage. Your thoughts about the term insulin resistance then? If we think about what you just said, the insulin resistance gives a very good analogy also to that whole key hypothesis where the key is not quite fitting. So there are keys. So there is some insulin in Mm. the blood, but it is just not fitting into that particular door at the Mm. time and the problem with that is the insulin the amount of insulin that your pancreas then has to produce increases yes more and and more keys exactly and it just makes the pancreas tired yeah and the ability of the pancreas to keep producing insulin um will wane over time again escom so the point is that insulin resistance i think is a almost like a blanket term for what we are trying to say where the patients have some insulin but they can't use it because their body is fighting with the insulin or those locks have been changed. And what happens then is the insulin goes higher and higher but so too does the circulating glucose because that janitor is still carrying around all those packets of glucose and they can't get in anywhere. And that is what happens over time is that the pancreas's ability to now create to, to to synthesize insulin reduces. The sugar level in your blood goes higher and higher, with the result that now it reaches that seven point zero, and the patient now has diabetes. Okay, so I think now, Simpiwe, do you have a clearer understanding of how we develop diabetes and what it's all about? Yes, okay. I think though it's a simple view of how we develop diabetes. You know what I think for. The purposes of this discussion, um, I think if we can bring that across, I think we've done well. Martine, now, higher sugar levels in the blood, these high glucose levels, yeah. what do they do? What is the problem? Why is this an issue? Over time, those circulating glucose levels will make you feel unwell. So let's deal with the symptoms of high sugar first. Mm. So because the glucose is high and it's circulating through throughout the body in high levels, 
What it does is it will diffuse into certain areas in your body. For example, the nerves in your feet, the nerves in your hands, the, the lens in your eye. And because of the high osmotic value, it will attract water. So that area then swells. So if it's in your eye, you can get blurred vision. If it's in the nerves in your feet, you can get all sorts of nerve symptoms. Usually um, patients will describe burning in their feet, pins and needles, numbness, sometimes pain. So that's the neuropathy. That's the, over time, it will develop into a neuropathy. So it's the, first an inflammatory reaction, basically. It is a reaction to the high sugar that is reversible. Okay. Over time... That process now becomes irreversible, can become irreversible because of advanced glycation end products. Essentially, the high sugar then can cause damage, long-lasting damage to certain areas. And one of them is the nerves, the back of the eye, the kidney, various places in the body. But that is why people will feel that they have burning feet when they have high sugar and why their vision becomes blurred. People will often say to you also that they go to the toilet very often to pass urine. Mm-hmm. And that is because of the same reason that in the urine there's a high sugar content. Ah, and that high sugar, sugar is level. pulling more and more um, sugar Water. out of the kidney into your filtration system, filling up the blood. Exactly. And then they go to the toilet a lot. There's also a high sugar level in that in that uh, urine, so it can cause bladder infections, thrush infections. And, yeah, um, that's a, those are some of the typical signs presenting that, features that recur- we see as recurring infections. And sometimes people can become quite dehydrated when this happens, and then they will complain of a dry mouth, or cotton feeling in their mouth. They are so thirsty, they cannot get enough water in. And sometimes they land up drinking Coke or juice. Because which, it, it actually, water sometimes can make you feel as if your mouth's even drier. Yeah, and then the problem with that is that Coca-Cola or soft drink, fizzy drink, plus a juice will just make your sugar now go higher and higher. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of higher and higher sugar, more and more symptoms. But the person doesn't know what to do because they're so thirsty, they keep drinking. I am going to ask Simpiwe a quick question. Simpiwe, how many teaspoons of sugar do you think is in a cream soda? Well, quite a lot. Um, What's the size of the, the bottle? Normal can. Normal can. Um, I don't know. I would say like 13. 14. Yeah. Very so high. just think about 14 That's teaspoons of sugar is half a cup. Yeah. And it's also, can I say hidden in things that people think are healthy in inverted commas. Ah, sparkling flavored, sparkling water. Sparkling flavored waters, um, yogurt drinks that we give to our kids, um, flavored teas, iced teas, um, Things like it's that. In all our food. Everything. Hidden sugars. Um, Martine, I, I don't know whether you saw this. Um, it, it's a little bit off topic, but I just want to illustrate this point. Um, the, the government wants to impose a tax on sugar, like they are doing with tobacco and alcohol, to dissuade people from doing this. And there was such a big uproar by the sugar producing companies that it would put people out of work because they have not yet moved on to creating sugar alternatives, which do exist. So, you know what, if we think about these big sugar companies, they supply so much sugar 
to the whole food and beverage industry. And it's not only sugary drinks. It's the fruit juices that we have, which are, have sugar in. It's the cereals that we give our kids that have hidden sugars in. It's in the sauces, tomato sauce, chutney, all those kind of things, which we all love, but we're unaware of. And it's in all our fridges. Exactly. And I also sometimes say to people when we talk about foods, not all sugar is sweet. I so, like that. So explain. So, again, a bit off topic, but when you drink a cream soda, as you mentioned, or a juice or some sort of flavored water, you will taste that it is sweet. You will get that that feedback from your tongue that this is sweet. And people love sweet things, and it's actually quite addictive, but that's a topic for another day. Yes. Unfortunately, people don't realize that sugar is the breakdown product of carbohydrates. So, as I said before, pastas, rice, bread, potatoes, potatoes certain vegetables, um, all break down in its simplest form to glucose which then it didn't matter if it was sweet to start off with or not. It has the same response in the body where it just pushes up your blood sugar level. So, you know what, again, sorry, we're going a bit off topic. Sucrose and lactose are also sugars, but they, and fructose. So what is the difference between them and glucose? Or do those sugars also break down to the essential, which is, Glucose. I was actually doing this with my daughter the other day in grade eight life sciences. It's, it's a combination of different types of carbohydrates. So the one is, um, fructose, um, glucose and fructose, glucose and lactose becomes galactose. Mel- it's just a combination of different oh, I simple that. sugars. Well, I'm supposed to remember that. It rings the bell. I just can't <laughs> picture them anymore. And unfortunately, um, People don't realize that even though fructose, which will, is in fruit, is natural, it still causes your sugar to go high if you eat it in excess. And certain fruits have higher levels, for example, watermelons, melons, grapes, mangoes, lychees, than, for example, berries, berries apples, stone fruit. So it's like a, a range. And then the other thing that um, I spoke to somebody about yesterday is there is sugar in milk. Mm-hmm. So if you have five cappuccinos a day, you're, you're getting a lot you're of getting milk. a lot of sugar. So are you talking about dairy milk? Or are you talking about almond and oat milk and all those dairy as well? Dairy milk with lactose is okay. usually the biggest culprit. Um, coconut milk is high in fat more than high in sugar, so it's not um, my first choice. But milk alternatives that I would choose would really be an almond milk because it doesn't have that much sugar content when it breaks down in your body. Okay, so just for those um, ladies that drink their skinny decaf cappuccino latte almond milk thingy, which one is better, almond milk or oat milk? I would have to check with my dietitian. <laughs> <laughs> I think the almond milk. I'll have to, I'm going to ask her after this. Um, I think the almond milk is the best alternative. But I think the point is what we were saying just now is that sugar is actually in everything. You can't be completely carb-free. You can't be completely sugar-free. But you need to have it in the correct portion, in the correct form. And you need to eat foods that don't spike up your sugar quickly and then the effect wanes. You need to have something that gives you a bit of a sugar boost because, as we said before, we need glucose to make energy. That is why we eat. 
um, to give us lasting energy throughout the day that we're not constantly hungry, constantly looking for something. Okay. So we were talking about signs. Um, there's a couple that I want to add that I see in my practice. Uh, erectile dysfunction is a, a very big one. That points to not only underlying disease, either with it being cardiovascular or diabetes. Um, that's one that I think a lot of people forget. That fatigue, the chronic fatigue, fatigue. is one. Changes in sleep, um, uh, for me, is a warning sign that, that something is underlying. Obviously, uh, weight gain, but... Weight gain is not a sign of di- symptom of diabetes. I-, I would rather say it's an association. Okay. You're not going to put on weight because your sugar is high. However, if your sugar is extremely high, you may lose weight. Yes, that's one that I wanted to get to. Um, we know that someone with rapid weight loss, that's unexplained, we need to go and look at diabetes. Um, it's It's something that progresses very quickly and it, it's usually uh, something that just comes out of the blue. Yeah, but I'm not changing anything. I'm losing weight. Uh, you know what? Maybe you should go and take a look at that. Um, yeah, Are there any other signs that you would say, okay, fine, guys, um, maybe keep an eye out for these? I think those are the major ones that we've spoken about. I think if we branch off a bit onto screening, who would we look for? diabetes in even if it is silent so people who are at high risk of developing diabetes are people with a family history of diabetes any kind of family history of diabetes so your aunt or your uncle had type 2 diabetes it it can be something that you need to be aware of yes okay so it's not only a direct relation mum or grandmother it can be it's slightly wider. In slightly the- wider because you you still had a common relative with the uncle or the cousin. And that common relative could have passed the genetics on to you. Okay. So there's a very strong genetic component, um, component even in type 2 diabetes. More so in type 2 diabetes. Not there, necessarily in type 1. There is some. We do sometimes see a parent and a child um, with type 1 diabetes. We do sometimes see it. But it's the association is not as strong. Okay. So it's more uh, type 2 diabetes, there would be a family history coming back to the metabolic syndrome, um, weight gain, definitely um, your um, abdominal circumference increasing, so putting on weight around the tummy area. Can I, can I just interject there for a second? Um, last week we spoke about screening tests, you know, 10 screening tests for men and women. Mm-hmm. And in all the literature, they still point to a body mass index, which has fallen out of favor with a medical fraternity greatly. Am I correct? It has. And we prefer to look at the weep, uh, hip, hip weight, mm-hmm. waist ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've explained so what's it. what's the, the difference between now the body and now the hip waist ratio? So think about this. Okay. Um, you have – a guy that's um, two meters tall, mm-hmm. rugby player, no fat. But if we look at his weight divided by his height, it's going to give us a ratio or a value that is greater than 27, 28, even up to 30, 
etc. Mm-hmm. He doesn't carry weight, but he would be classified according to the old BMI as being obese. I'm one of those people. Okay. So I still have a BMI that tells me that I'm overweight. Now, Martin, do I look overweight? No. Okay. So I'm just one of those patients who luckily have quite calcified, dense bones with a little bit of muscle mass on that. Mm-hmm. Now, when we look at the hip-waist ratio, yes. it's a far better indication of us of obesity rather than of, you know what, you you have a problem. So do you want to maybe explain the, the waist ratio? What's the normal waist ratio or hip-to-waist ratio? It's less than one. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I think what's important to, to understand is if we just, rather than speaking about specific numbers, I think what's important to understand is that different um, ethnic groups have different places where they deposit their fat. So if you um, if you are, are from the Asian population group, they would say to you that you should have less fat and therefore you your waist circumference should be less than a given number, which would be still considered normal if you were in from the Caucasian population group. Ah, and that so there's is an ethnic difference. There is an ethnic difference according to the different population groups. And, and giving specific numbers, I don't think it will add any value. Okay. But I think the point is that the, the BMI, it is still unfortunately used um, at the moment. But if we're looking at diabetes particularly, you wouldn't – Obviously, you worry about people who are overweight and obese, but once they are carrying the weight in that apple type of shape around the middle is when you would consider that person to have a higher risk of developing diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But there are people who are more of a pear shape where their upper body is thinnish and then they carry their weight in the buttocks area and the top of their legs and they – um, have a different fat distribution. Often, also that fat that fat is subcutaneous rather than and visceral, visceral. Fat. and okay. all those things come sense. into play. So that's why I think we we focus on this waist circumference when we're talking about you know who to screen for diabetes because it's just a more neutral thing across all um, ethnic groups. Although actual numbers may vary whether you perhaps are Asian or Caucasian. Okay. Or um, okay. you fit into one of the other groups. Okay. So we're screening patients who are starting to show changes in weight. Changes in weight. Um, women who may have had a gestational diabetes, which is an abnormal glucose in pregnancy, but it wasn't high enough to say they actually had diabetes. Okay. You and I discussed this one. If you've had gestational diabetes, your risk of developing type 2 diabetes Jumps tremendously. Between the num- different um, sources, quote different numbers, but anywhere between thirty and fifty percent is what. That's a lot. It is. It's a lot, and often those ladies, when you speak to them, have one or both parents who have type two diabetes. So their risk is already there if you keep going back to the family history. Mm. Um, Sometimes um, if antenatal screening is not so good and these women do not have their urine tested for their glucose or they haven't been for a, goes, a glucose tolerance test, you can say how big were your children. And if the babies are more than four kilograms, kilograms yes. they're considered macrosomic, and then that would also give them an extra point in terms of a higher risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes. Okay. 
Okay, so if you have a big baby, be on the lookout later Absolutely. on in life. Absolutely. Okay. And that's that, a, but I think that's a great way of putting it. It is because you may not know what your glucose level was when you were pregnant, but you will certainly remember that your baby was over four kilograms. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So some of the other risk factors, again, going back to that metabolic syndrome would be that high triglyceride value, hypertension, abnormal thyroid, um, and, and things like that. Those are the, the major reasons why people okay. would say to you, you have to screen. And also if you belong to certain ethnic groups, that would give you an indication that you may have a higher chance of developing type 2 diabetes. In South Africa, you know what, we see our Indian population um, who has a very strong genetic predisposition or, you know, what I, I, when an Indian patient sits in my practice, um, and I ask them, so who in the family had diabetes? And they say, no one. I look at them quite funny. It's like, are you sure? Because it's, it's so prevalent, it but prevalent. it's also very prevalent in our African patients. And you blew me away with the one that it's also very prevalent in our colored patients. It is, and a, a lot of those increase in prevalence, it, a lot of it is associated with the increasing incidence of obesity, particularly in our colored population in our, and in our African female population. We are seeing numbers that rival those of North America, where the incidence of obesity is up to 60%. And that, as we were talking about just now, whether it's your high BMI or your high waist or you're just carrying a lot of excess weight, that can certainly increase your chances of developing type 2 diabetes. Also in South Africa, we have factors like um, urbanization, people moving from mm. rural areas into cities where um, their diet changes from things that they were eating, less processed foods, more natural foods, home-cooked meals, mm. to pro ultra-processed, ready, quick, heat-and-eat type of foods. Woolies. Woolies, McDonald's, anywhere, you know, not to name and shame, but people where uh, it or, or food that has got a very high calorie content, a very high fat content, very high glycemic index foods, white breads and things like that, white pastas, cheeses that are very fatty, coming back to that whole triglyceride discussion we had earlier. But people are changing what they are eating. They are doing less exercise. We drive everywhere, particularly in, in mm. South Africa. We Absolutely. don't walk. We drive. Yeah. If you and come from the rural areas where you lived in the village, you walked, you walked to go and get water. Yes. Now water's on tap, so you become um, inactive. Yes, and that's one of the biggest risk factors Absolutely. of diabetes or de 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 developing diabetes is inactivity and sedentary lifestyle. Absolutely. Physical inactivity is one of the biggest things we are fighting now. And funnily enough, during COVID, we had the two extremes. We had the situation where people were at home and they had more time and they would um, do um, follow YouTube videos and do exercise Baking. at home. Well, no, let's not even talk about that. Let's talk about the activity <laughs> first. But people who would uh, follow an online walking program, like I do. So I don't go out to gym, but I follow an online walking program, and it gives you a very good workout. And you've got people who started walking around the neighborhood once we were allowed out of yes, our homes yes, yes. or walking around their garden. That. Exactly. So there was that, which was really very, very different to the people who just sat on the couch and ate, ate what they baked. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, some people have put on a lot of weight and this COVID pandemic in many ways has also increased the incidence of diabetes. And I read an article last week that was speaking about 
the increase in prevalence of type 2 diabetes since COVID. One, because of weight gain and inactivity, and another one, if you were infected with COVID, your chances now are higher of developing type 2 diabetes. And it's quite a complex reason why, but essentially the... The, those ACE2 receptors that were in the lung that we were talking about yeah. w- with the, the COVID pneumonias, you've got ACE2 receptors in your pancreas and your, your pancreatic function is disturbed with the result that you can become diabetic after COVID. Um, Martine, one of the other um, s- uh, contributing factors to diabetes or risk factors is m- menopause and andropause. Um when we look at decrease in estrogen levels and testosterone levels, there's a far higher risk of developing diabetes. But you know what? One of the questions I ask every single new patient in my practice is, tell me exactly which kind of diseases you had. You know what? What are the big ones? Did you have heart attacks or strokes or cancers or blah, blah, blah? And then I ask them infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID, number okay. one. Um, and all the patients that I see who had COVID has some kind of shift in their hormone levels. And we forget that hormones are not only estrogen and testosterone, it's all the other 50 hormones in the body. And I also see other infective diseases, malaria, balassia, tick bite fever, glandular fever, all of those um I see empirical evidence and observational evidence that there's a change in energy metabolism and energy metabolism includes your glucose and insulin metabolism as well as your thyroid metabolism. I think that also brings me to an important part of my consultation where I will say to someone, have you had a stressful life event recently? So sometimes newly diagnosed people will come in after COVID pneumonia or being in hospital with high levels of cortisone being pumped into them, or they have lost someone close to them, a spouse, a parent, Mm. they have moved house, they have been through a divorce, they have had problems in their business. So I think that we can see that various forms of stress on the body is affecting your your hormone balance in your body. Absolutely. Having knock-on effect. I I presented at a symposium last week about stress, and let's just quickly think about what happens during the stress response. Immediately, stress response elevates adrenaline, and what adrenaline does immediately elevates your glucose levels as well as fat in the blood through releasing it out of temporary storage. Now, think about all of us at the moment. We're stage six load shedding, the economy um, sitting in traffic, our stress levels are remaining high. So we go from a stress, a, t- a type one stress reaction to a type two stress reaction where we start elevating cortisol levels. And cortisol is responsible for managing your glucose levels. All the hormones that you've mentioned, your adrenaline, your noradrenaline, your cortisol, your growth hormone, those are considered the counter-regulatory um, hormones in terms of Instead of storing glucose, you now release glucose. So those would normally be released in a controlled amount when we wake up in the morning so that we have energy to get out of bed. But these stressful life events and, as you say, moving from one response to another and 
like a chronic stress response will yes. inappropriately elevate these hormones, which may consistently release glucose from storage in the liver and the muscle and the kidney, causing problems in your glucose metabolism. Okay, so what are the effects um, of diabetes on on us? Uh, I think the big ones you've touched on, uh, cardiovascular disease because of the damage to the blood vessels, uh, neuropathy, uh, which is damage to nerves over time, kidney disease, chronic kidney disease, and this is probably one of the biggest problems that we see in, in long, long-term diabetics, especially if they don't manage it properly, is kidney failure. Kidney failure and um, what they call the need for renal replacement therapy or dialysis. And unfortunately, um, it's becoming more and more common to see people who need dialysis because their kidneys no longer function okay. at a... Um, at a rate that they can release all the toxins and build up of um, things that would normally be released in your urine. So what I normally say to people when we talk about complications is that diabetes can affect your body from the top of your head to the tip of your toes. And I say if we break it down into small and large blood vessel problems, mm-hmm. the large blood vessel group would increase your incidence of heart attack and stroke. And diabetes in and of itself, without your high blood pressure, your high cholesterol and other associated problems, increases your risk of having a heart attack by five times. Sure. So your, uh, you know, um, friend who is the same age, same weight, same everything, who does not have diabetes, his risk is five times less than what you have if we account for all other risk factors. Wow. That's scary. It is very scary. And heart attacks and strokes are are becoming also very prevalent in a very high, um, a a very large area of cost expenditure and um, problems that can cause people over time. If we look at small blood vessel problems, and I think these are perhaps less well-known why they happen, but definitely the back of the eye, diabetes is a leading cause of blindness, uh, it can, it's associated with high pressures in your eye, glaucoma, increase in cataract formation. Mm. It, uh, we spoke about the kidney and the nerves. Those are the major ones. But I think a, one that is very close to my heart is that diabetes increases blockages of blood vessels in your leg blood vessels. So not yes. only around the heart and going to the head, okay. but you know it can, it's a very, very high risk um, of developing non-traumatic limb amputations. These, you know, what we see these patients, and you can go and take a look at them. Um, it's these patients with these swollen, very tight, hard legs, usually with discoloration in the ankles, etc., etc. And these are the patients that, when they get um, a little. Uh, bump or something it leads to an, an ulcer that doesn't go away or a wound that doesn't want a to heal. A wound, yes, and twofold the reason for that. The one is that they don't feel the problem because their nerves are not working properly. And the other problem is that their blood vessels, the small blood vessels become blocked, so oxygen cannot be taken to that that blister or ulcer and mm-hmm. is unable to heal. The other major problem in the heart is heart failure. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to add two, and because this is something that I deal with in my practice mm-hmm. every day, and this is erectile dysfunction, Absolutely. diabetics, patients with um, 
diabetes or glucose levels that are not regulated presents with erectile dysfunction and this does not respond to your normal over-the-counter prescription medications because of the damage to To these blood vessels. And now I have to go and do um, regenerative kinds of therapies with PRP to stimulate uh, blood vessel repair and repair of the spongiosum, et cetera, et cetera. And for women, one of the other symptoms that they present with is, as you said earlier, vaginal atrophy and then an increase in urinary tract infections and thrush. So, you know, this is, uh, this is such a severe systemic full body effect. Um, and it's something that, Martin, in your opinion, um, and mine is definitely preventative and sometimes even reversible. Absolutely. With the correct therapy and with the correct adjustment to lifestyle, a large portion of these um, potential complications can be avoided. Um, we, we must treat other associated conditions because you can't say if your sugar is fine but your cholesterol is high that your erectile dysfunction will get better or that you do not have a high risk for developing a heart attack. So all those metabolic conditions need to be treated. And it's something we do in our clinic. We look at the patient holistically and try and manage all yeah. of these conditions. Otherwise, we may not get the desired effect. And it's very important for people, to, our patients to realize that diabetes treatment is not just what is my sugar in my blood. It's about how it's affecting the rest of the body and making sure that we try and manage as many aspects of it as we can. Okay, so I've been given the lasso by Simpiwe, which means that I we need to wrap up. Um, Martine, we're going to continue our series on diabetes um, next month. And um, for people that want to know more, you are at the Madam Medical Diabetic Center here in Gallomanet, Johannesburg. Um how do we get hold of you? If you would like to um, speak to me or book an appointment, it's best to phone my, my nurse in charge, my diabetic nurse educator. Oh, she's lovely, guys. You will love Kavashni. She is just the best. And um, her phone number is 011-804-6661. And the email address is manadiabetes at doxa. Okay. Otherwise, if you guys can't get that, it will be on the T Clinic website and on our web pages. Um, so if you want to know more, if you can't get hold of Dr. Martine and would like to discuss things with her, um, there is a consultation that needs to go through. We can assist you in that. Contact us at the T Clinic on 10 Nine eight two four one three nine three. You know, it, it's at the end of the day. Don't laugh, Simpiwe. Um, actually, I can tell you that Martine is treating me for impaired glucose tolerance, which we diagnosed out of the blue. And again, it was after I had COVID. So um, that brings us to the end of our show. We'll be back next week. Martine, Thank you so much for taking the time out to come and speak to us and the listeners. This is a topic that's incredibly close to my heart because I know that it's preventable and treatable. So, again, thank you very much. 
That was the Tea Health Show, empowering you with knowledge. Download all previous episodes on your favorite podcast platform. The Tea Health Show is brought to you by Tea Clinic.